It's the summer of 1718. The newly appointed governor of the Bahamas, Woods Rogers, drags himself from his sick bed. He douses his face in cold water. The worst of his fever has passed, thank God. Rogers has known pain in his life. He was wounded twice while fighting the Spanish. But this last bout of sickness was as bad as anything he has experienced. The twisting agony in his guts has tormented him all night. The fresh water washes the sweat from his brow and the remnants of sleep from his eyes. But the delirious nightmares still linger, haunting him. In the cold light of day, his waking reality is just as chilling as any fever dream. Disease has rampaged through his company, killing 86 of those who traveled with him to Nassau. The unrepentant pirate Charles Vane is still on the loose, and the threat of war with Spain looms ever larger. A lesser man might buckle under the strain, but Rogers is not one to give in easily. The governor dresses himself in a fine suit befitting his office. Regarding himself in the looking glass, he adjusts his lace cuffs and as a finishing touch, straightens his powdered wig. His lacquered walking cane in hand, Rogers slowly makes his way up to the semi-ruined fortress which is in the process of being rebuilt, and enters his makeshift colonial offices. Two men come in, Benjamin Hornigold and John Cockrum. Rogers views them with equal parts suspicion and satisfaction. Both men were once notorious pirates, but are now reformed, leading figures in the pro-pardon faction. Governor Rogers receives them cordially, inviting them to sit down. The three men understand each other well. They have spent much of their lives at sea and have the mutual respect of one mariner for another. It's true that Hornigold and Cockrum once engaged in piracy, but Rogers' own past exploits were not all that different. Hornigold and Cockrum are perhaps even a little in awe of Woods Rogers, the famous privateer who sailed around the world and captured a Spanish treasure galleon. That's a feat they would dearly love to have pulled off. Despite his reputation for prickliness, Rogers does his best to put them at their ease. Rogers knows that Hornigold is key to his own success in Nassau. Hornigold still holds influence on the island. He is also, at heart, a patriot and no friend of the Spanish. A proud man and eager for a chance to prove his renewed loyalty to king and country. After exchanging pleasantries, the governor's expression grows grave. It's time to get down to business. He has a proposition for them. He wants them to go after Charles Vane.
I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Since fleeing Nassau in July, Charles Vane has been busy. With the Bahamas as his hunting ground, he has captured two sloops and a brigantine before heading for South Carolina. En route, he captures eight more vessels. But things don't entirely go Vane's way. His men are beginning to desert him. One of those to split from Vane is Charles Yates, whom Vane had trusted to command an eight-gun sloop in his fleet. Yates and his crew make their way to South Carolina, where they surrender to the governor and take the king's pardon. Through 1718, there has been this constant tug of war. The pardon calls men home, but the lure of piracy is strong and pulls many back. It's a battle for their souls. Vane needs to boost the morale of his company, and there's no better way to do that than to capture a prize. The bigger, the better. On August 30th, the large merchant ship Neptune, under the command of one Captain King, is intercepted by Vane. Vane takes the Neptune and his other prizes to Green Turtle Key, 120 miles north of Nassau in the Bahamas. Where, about this time, Hornigold and Cockrum accept the governor's commission as pirate hunters. There is no love lost between Cockrum and Vane. At the very mention of the name, Cockrum tenses up in anger. He has not forgotten the insult Vane inflicted on him when he captured his ship, the Richard and John. Hornigold's motivations, on the other hand, are less obvious. Despite his influence and notoriety amongst the pirates, he may have always been conflicted about his path. Dr. Manishag Pal is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. Hornigold seems to have been kind of a rule follower. He declared himself the governor of Nassau. He wanted there to be a government and rules. He's not an anarchist. And he certainly seems to have been pretty quick to take the pardon and to argue that others should take the pardon. So when the government offers him the chance to kind of like return to the bosom of Mother England, he's all for it. And then he turns pirate hunter and tries to track down his old compatriots or whatever. So the question is, does that make him a traitor and an opportunist? Or is it that he is someone who was in fact very consistent in what he thought was allegiance to the English government? Does aiding Rogers offer Hornigold absolution? Or just the means to escape justice for his crimes? Whatever his real motivations, Hornigold is now fully committed to the cause of law and order. Or at least, that's the role he's committed to playing. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. 
he became sort of a right-hand man, a trusted person to Woods Rogers, who wanted to help bring the Bahamas back into sort of civilization, I guess, if you will, and who ended up hunting many of his rivals, right? People like Charles Vane. Hornigold and Cockrum leave Nassau on September 18th, 1718, bound for Green Turtle Key, the last reported location of Charles Vane. As Rogers watches them go from the harbour side, he must have wondered if it was wise to place his trust in two known pirates. Will he ever see them again? Perhaps they will even join with Vane and attempt to retake Nassau and his fledgling colony. Rogers shudders at the thought and glances anxiously over to the dilapidated fortifications. The work is not progressing well. Given the laborers are all former pirates, he is hardly surprised. Men who are used to the easy pickings of piracy do not take naturally to the hard work needed to rebuild a town. Rogers writes about his frustrations. Most of them are poor and so addicted to idleness that they would choose almost rather to starve than work. Rogers' doubts will prove well-founded. Every night, men steal boats and slip away from the rigors of life under the new governor. The lure of Charles Vane and the pull of their former life proves too much for them. By Roger's own estimate, as many as 150 supposedly reformed pirates go back to their old ways between July and October 1718. He relies on those who are left to defend the capital but has little faith in their abilities, writing, Should their old friends have strength enough to design to attack me, I much doubt whether I would find one half to join me. Rogers is feeling vulnerable, and just when he reaches his lowest point, he receives a bitter blow. And then the Royal Navy captains, the commodore of the detachment of Royal Navy vessels that had backed Rogers, Upton left a few weeks after he arrived. He begged them to stay, right? He's in a tough position. But the Commodore said no and took off, leaving only one frigate behind. And then over time, the captain even of that frigate made it clear he wished to leave as well. On the face of it, it seems like a dereliction of duty on the part of the naval captains. So why did they go? Could it be something to do with Woods Rogers' temperament? He keeps ending up in these situations where the Royal Navy captains who are supposed to join him to say defend the Bahamas are like taking off and writing letters where they're casting aspersions on him. They clearly hate the guy. They hate him so much they won't even hang around to help him out. Whilst Roger's combative personality may not have won over many friends, in truth, the departure of the Navy is all part and parcel of Britain's disjointed system of empire. At the end of the day, the resettlement of the Bahamas is a private enterprise, one Rogers is personally responsible for. Now the only allies Rogers has are the former pirates he so despises. It's a funny old world. November 1718. Somewhere off the island of Green Turtle Key in the Bahamas. The sloop Bonnet cuts quietly through the waters. Captain Benjamin Hornigold stands on the quarterdeck, scanning the shoreline through his spyglass. 
Once, not so long ago, he had looked out through the same spyglass in search of merchant ships to plunder. Once, he had been a pirate grandee. He had promoted men like Blackbeard and Samuel Bellamy, sailed in consort with Olivier Labuse, tussled for supremacy with men like Henry Jennings. These men, both friends and rivals, had been his kin. Their way had been his way. For a time, he had even been their leader. After all, it was Hornigold who had founded the Republic of Pirates in Nassau. Other men may have had fiercer reputations, but Hornigold always had an eye on the future. He had tried to walk a tightrope, preferring to attack the old enemies of England, thus avoiding direct conflict with the crown. But as the saying goes, beggars can't be choosers. And the same applies to pirates. Whether he wanted to or not, more than once his crews had preyed on British ships. The fact remains that Hornigold was once the leader of a company of 350 pirates. And when he hoisted the black flag, it inspired as much terror in his victims as any other pirate. But today, it's not the Jolly Roger flying from the bonnet's mainmast. It's the Union Jack. And Hornigold is not looking for plunder. He's looking for Charles Vane. Benjamin Hornigold, the first pirate governor of Nassau, is now hunting down the latest man to claim that title. And perhaps the last. The sun is setting over Green Turtle Key. Darkness comes on quickly. Charles Vane spits contemptuously. He gives a half-smile as he watches his men cavort wildly about him. The air is thick with smoke from the bonfire. The men's pipes flicker and glow like small dark stars. He wonders what exactly they're celebrating. Their latest prizes, for sure. But more than that, for now they seem to be rejoicing in their very existence, their freedom their fierce independence, their pirate's life. But beneath the raucous festivities, he senses the men's anxiety, their frustrations. Here and there, fights break out. The campfire flames light up Vane's face with an eerie glow. His expression is hard to read. His eyes are fierce. Stubborn, some say cruel, but there is something else there now, a shadow over his usual devil-may-care defiance. He knows that Governor Rogers sent two sloops to hunt him down. He knows they are captained by men he once considered allies. Scum. Traitors. Cowards who took the king's pardon rather than carry on the fight. He has nothing but contempt for those turncoats. 
His enemies are closing in, and his friends are abandoning him. His whole way of life is under threat. And yet, he refuses to accept that the end of an era is drawing near. For Vane, there will never be a day that doesn't end with pirates getting blind drunk on a beach somewhere. He looks out to where he can hear the inky black sea lapping at the shore. Somewhere out there, Hornigold and Cockrum are anchored. Let them come. He will blast them from the water. But his enemies are closer than he knows. And they are watching him. Hornigold is engaged in a game of cat and mouse with Vane. There's no shortage of secluded bays in the Bahamas. Hornigold and his fellow pirate-turned-pirate-hunter John Cockrum hide out in one of them. With Vane in their sights, they send out men to gather intelligence. Hornigold and Cockrum form an impression of Vane's forces. As well as his brigantine flagship, he is now in possession of two more ships, the Neptune and the Emperor. The pirate hunters decide Vane is too powerful to take on in an open battle. For now. Their only hope is to ambush him when he becomes separated from his main company. But that doesn't happen. Meanwhile, another ship arrives at Green Turtle Key, the 30-ton sloop Wolf, captained by Nicholas Woodall, a supposedly reformed pirate from Nassau who has taken the King's pardon. Woodall fills Vane in on the news from Nassau, and perhaps provides intel on his pursuers. At any rate, Vane decides it's time to move on. The pirates vote to maroon their captives. They destroy the Neptune by firing a double-loaded cannon into her hold. Vane and his supporters sail away in the Brigantine and the Wolf. After their departure, Hornigold arrives with provisions and support for the maroon sailors. As night falls, he sets off once again in pursuit of the pirates. Back in Nassau, Governor Woods Rogers is growing anxious. He has had no word from Hornigold or Cockrum for weeks. He puts his fear into words, writing, Hornigold was either taken by Vane or begun his old practice of pirating again. Meanwhile, work continues on the regeneration of the Bahamas. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates. He comes into the Bahamas and discovers that many of the islands there are in disarray, especially the island of Providence, which was known to house the majority of pirates in the city of Nassau. He goes in and sees that they need a lot of new forts to be rebuilt. They need a lot of new plantation homes to be built. The cities need refortification, and he needs a lot of labor. The existing residents of Nassau prove less than cooperative. He's governor of the Bahamas, veins out there raiding vessels. He knows that half the people in Nassau probably would fall back into piracy, has to win their hearts and minds. There's this whole tenuous situation. And they're all scoping him out. How powerful are you? And things don't go so well for Rogers. He can't get a lot of the pirates. They don't want to work carrying stones around and shoring up the fort again. You know, they don't want to work doing anything. They've been enjoying their pirate life. As we heard in the last episode, Woods Rogers has brought a workforce of colonists with him. 
around 130 men with their wives and children, mostly Protestant refugees from mainland Europe. Unfortunately, the colonists' dreams of starting a new life quickly turned to dust. Things go badly pretty much from the start because by the time they arrive, there's this outbreak of an illness that's spreading across the island. We're not quite sure what this illness is. It appears it might've been some sort of gastrointestinal illness that was very, very contagious. So many of the colonists come and many of them die quite quickly because of this. They're also being introduced to new tropical illnesses and diseases and conditions that they never ever would have encountered before. It is very common for new colonists to get sick with pretty much anything as they hit the Caribbean because they have no immunity to things like yellow fever, dengue fever, malaria, et cetera. So they probably caught some of these illnesses as well. So because there were so many people who died and there was such a small labor shortage, they had a very difficult time being able to build any sort of housing and also to cultivate their own food. And it isn't just disease that the colonists have to contend with. A lot of them just didn't really have the skills necessary, especially in a very, very different environment in the Caribbean. So a lot of them resorted to eating food that had they lived there for a while would have been familiar, such as turtle, but to them it was very unfamiliar, so they would avoid it or it would make them feel ill at first. So they were really unhappy with the food. And so as a result, many of them became very demoralized. They refused to do heavy labor for Woods Rogers. A lot of the men went to the taverns and began drinking copiously, adding to the major alcohol problem that the island was already known to have. So. The colonists went with a lot of high hopes and good expectations, only to have them dashed with a lot of disillusionment quite quickly. It's a major setback for Woods Rogers' plan for recolonizing New Providence. But right now, he has bigger problems. The dire state of the island's defenses has become an urgent priority. Rogers doesn't just fear vain in return of the pirates. A far more powerful enemy threatens their existence. There was the specter that war would resume with Spain, which it did in 1718. And suddenly he feared that the Spanish would invade his island. And in fact, he was right to fear that. The Spanish were planning to invade his island. They staged an entire invasion force that approached the island at a time when Rogers would never have been able to repel it. Fortunately, Rogers finally catches a break. A planned Spanish invasion of the Bahamas is diverted to defend Florida from the French. It's a stay of execution, but Rogers knows the Spanish will return. It's only a matter of time. And Rogers remains isolated and exposed, especially now that the Navy has departed. Even the people he is trying to help seem to be working against him. Just when it seems all hope is lost, Rogers sees a sight that must have lifted his heart. Two sloops sail into Nassau Harbor. One is the Bonnet, the other Captain Woodall's renegade ship, the Wolf. Hornigold has returned, and he has brought with him a gift for Governor Rogers. Captive pirates. You can sense Rogers' relief in the letter he writes back to England. Captain Hornigold having proved honest, disobliged his friends, divides the people here, and makes me stronger than I expected. He keeps to himself that he was one of those who doubted Hornigold. The capture of Woodall and his crew is good news for Rogers, 
but it does present him with a problem. What to do with the prisoners? Traditionally, pirates captured in the colonies were sent back to England for trial. But the war against piracy has changed all that. Many governors and colonies were given a lot of incentives to hunt pirates or get rid of piracy starting around 1717 and 1718. And the way they did this was by having a lot more admiralty power coming in. A lot more admiralty courts were established throughout the Caribbean and North America. And these were the courts specifically in charge for carrying out maritime law. And at the turn of the 18th century, they were very specifically charged just to focus on piracy itself. In the event, Rogers backs out of putting Woodall and his accomplices on trial in Nassau. He knows the limits of his power and fears an uprising against him. As he explains in a letter to London, I was at that time too weak to bring them to a trial for most of the people here, having led the same course of life, I did not know, but if I had tried them, an insurrection might have rescued them from the guard service. I did not think myself secure to try the pirates. Rogers may claim moral authority over the pirates, but without the military force to back it up, he's powerless, especially in the face of a semi-hostile population. He puts Woodall on the next ship back to England to face justice there. Meanwhile, news comes in that the crews of four previously legitimate trading ships have turned pirate, led by one John Auger, another pirate who had reneged on the pardon. These pirates are like the mythical hydra you cut off one head only to spawn several more in its place. Rogers is at his wit's end. His fear is that these new pirates will join with Charles Vane, who remains at liberty. Rogers turns once more to Hornigold and Cockrum. There's an old saying, set a thief to catch a thief. In the many years he sailed as a pirate, Hornigold certainly learned a few tricks. By his way of thinking, it's always better to avoid a fight if you can. Brains over brawn every time. And the plan he hatches now shows his old cunning. He is on the hunt once more and closing in on the renegade pirate crew of John Auger. Hornigold knows that the men who he is hunting will recognize him and would also know that he is now working for Governor Rogers. So when he locates them, he sends across a man they don't know. This man plays the part of the captain of a friendly ship. Hornigold's man sympathizes with their plight. He can see that things haven't been going well for them. He invites them over to his sloop for food, water, and other refreshments. It's too good an offer to resist. But when they get on board, they see that they are now prisoners of Captain Benjamin Hornigold. There must have been some sort of struggle, because three out of the gang of captured pirates lose their lives. But Roger's faith in Hornigold is vindicated. The pirate hunter returns with ten prisoners. Frustratingly, Charles Vane is not one of them. Once again, Rogers praises Hornigold to the rafters. I am glad of this new proof Captain Hornigold has given the world to wipe off the infamous name he has hereto been known by. 
Does Hornigold feel any regret, even shame, at delivering these nine men to their deaths? Certainly the pirate-friendly populace of Nassau are unimpressed. The records show the prisoners range from the middle-aged, 45-year-old William Cunningham was once a gunner in Blackbeard's crew, to the 18-year-old George Bendel, who, despite his callow youth, is no lesser a villain. Rogers convenes a secret session of Nassau's governing council, all men that he has appointed. Rogers recognizes this is a massive test of his authority. If they show weakness, the pirates will smell blood. He writes, If any fear be shown on our part, it might animate several now here to incite the pirates without to attempt the rescue of those in custody. It's vain they're worried about. The only solution is to bring the prisoners to trial as soon as possible. Trials had an important role to play in the war against pirates. It's not simply a question of justice. It's a battle for hearts and minds of those who might be tempted into piracy. Dr. David Wilson is an academic and author of Suppressing Piracy in the Early 18th Century. More pirates are being captured and more pirates are being executed in the colonies themselves. And that creates a public spectacle locally, but then it's disseminated throughout the media. So in the Boston newsletter and beyond, and then it translates back to England as well and to Britain as well, whereby these executions are also reported on there. And there's printed pamphlets of the trials themselves. Again, all just trying to ramp up this public spectacle and ramp up the knowledge that this is what happens if you become a pirate. The decision to go to trial is a crucial one for the governor. Something must have changed in the months since Woodall's arrest, and now Rogers is obviously feeling more secure in his position. Despite labor difficulties, some progress has been made on the town's fortifications. But the main difference is that Rogers now knows for sure that he can trust influential ex-pirates like Hornigold to back him. He will need them to win over hostile elements in the population, and possibly to help him fight off an attack from vain or foreign enemies. And so he's resolved to act, the final test of his authority on Nassau. Rogers establishes the vice-admiralty court necessary to try the prisoners. As governor, he will be the presiding officer, with seven other judges drawn from the governing council. Sitting smugly on the bench sits the elderly Thomas Walker. If you recall from episode four, Walker was horribly abused by the pirates and eventually driven off the island. How vindicated must he feel now, though he may also feel some resentment at the newly appointed justices sitting alongside him. One in particular is Josiah Burgess, who, like Hornigold, was once one of the most influential pirates on Nassau and made Walker's life a misery. But having another founder of the Pirate Republic helping to condemn his former colleagues is a huge PR boost for Rogers. With tensions rising, he needs all the help he can get. As is typical of pirate trials, there will be no jury. After all, the local citizens can't be relied on to deliver the right verdict. A jury system could render this verdict in an, a different way because there were people who were fascinated by pirates, 
or even pro-pirate in some ways, and they couldn't risk this. So by taking away the jury system, it puts all the control of the decision into the judge's hands, and they're able to carry out these executions in a much faster and simpler matter. The trial begins on December 9th and lasts just two days. Two days to decide the fate of 10 men. The most damning aspect of the charges against them is read out. The men were not just accused of piracy, they were accused of breaking their oaths to the king. They had gone back on their word. An example has to be made. Woods Rogers has to assert his authority. Otherwise, anarchy will prevail, as it always has in Nassau. The prisoners are taken away while the judges deliberate. It doesn't take long for them to reach a verdict. Nine of the ten men are found guilty. It's early in the morning, on Friday, December 12th, 1718. Beneath the ramparts of Nassau Fortress, a makeshift gallows is being constructed on the sand. A sullen crowd gathers to watch the carpenter at work. The mood is tense, but subdued. Most of those watching are, or have been, pirates. Stood alone, watching from a distance, is Benjamin Hornigold. He studies the crowd, noting the sneers and whispers. It's easy to imagine his internal conflict as he contemplates his role in this spectacle. How had it come to this? With him turning in his own friends, former friends. A wooden platform is placed loosely on top of three barrels, with a rope secured to each barrel. Above, nine nooses hang down, one for each of the condemned men. As a finishing touch and a final insult, a black flag is raised over the gallows. The crowd grows in number until there are about 300 people assembled. Soldiers are positioned by the gallows to maintain the peace and ensure there's no last-minute rescue attempts. More armed men are stationed on the ramparts, their guns trained on the crowd below. The fortress cannons are also directed downwards. Governor Woods Rogers is taking no chances, but it is not just from the crowd that he fears some kind of disruption. Rumors abound that Charles Vane himself is on his way, intent on storming the quayside and freeing the prisoners. There is no time to lose. The sooner Rogers gets these men hanged, the better. Just before 10 that morning, the prisoners are led out onto the ramparts. The crowd goes wild, but most of the men paraded in front of them present a sorry picture, their heads down, hands tied behind their backs. John Auger, commander of numerous vessels, is a shadow of his former self, unwashed and ragged, a rough stubble shadowing his face. 
Auger is given a small glass of wine. He stoically raises his glass and drinks a toast to the governor. Woods Rogers is tense but unflinching. Some of the condemned play to the crowd. Dennis McCarthy, a husband and a father to a young child, appears almost cheerful. Decked out in blue ribbons, he shouts defiantly that he knew a time when there were many brave fellows on the island who would not suffer him to die like a dog. He then kicks off his shoes and sends them flying into the crowd, declaring that some friends of his had often said that he would die in his shoes, meaning he'd die young in his chosen profession, and still laughing adds that he would make them liars. Governor Rogers nods to the Provost Marshal. It's time to bring an end to this. One by one, the prisoners are led down to the gallows. As 22-year-old Thomas Morris mounts the ladder, he also addresses the crowd. We have a good governor, but a harsh one. His gallows humor goes down well. The prisoners line up and the executioner deftly slips nine nooses around nine necks. Psalms are sung and a final glass of wine is passed around. Morris and McCarty continue to work the crowd, urging their supporters to come to their rescue. According to a general history of the pirates, Morris challenges the onlookers to rise and save them from the ignominious death they were going to suffer. At one point, it looks like the rabble will take up the call. There is a surge towards the front. By some accounts, the pirates make one last rallying cry. In the final moments, when asked if they were repentant, one of the condemned replies, Yes, I do heartily repent. I repent I had not done more mischief, and that we did not cut the throats of them that took us, and I am extremely sorry that you aren't all hanged as well. To which his fellows respond, So do I, and another, and I. The soldiers, bayonets fixed, brace themselves and raise their muskets. The crowd stops in its tracks. Governor Rogers steps forward. He raises one hand. All eyes turn on him. Free George Rounceville, cries Rogers. It's a dramatic twist. The noose is released from the stunned looking Rounceville and he's led away, shaking, weeping. He thanks God. Is Rogers playing the merciful ruler to keep the crowd on side? If so, why save Ranceville? Perhaps it's just good fortune. Some have suggested it's because Ranceville hails from Rogers' home county of Dorset. Born to a good family, Rogers may even have known of them. But if the rest of the condemned men are hoping for similar mercy, they are disappointed. Defiant to the end, Thomas Morris cries out again, I might have been a greater plague to these islands and I now wish I had been. Woods Rogers has heard enough. He gives the signal. Soldiers heave on the ropes attached to the barrels, pulling them out from under the stage. The platform collapses. Eight men writhe and swing, their legs kicking out in the empty air. 
they dance the hempen jig. A stunned silence settles on the watching crowd. Benjamin Hornigold, his eyes stinging, turns away. The bodies of the eight convicted pirates are left to hang on the Nassau seafront. It's a powerful message. The black flag now flying above the bodies that had once struck fear into the hearts of honest mariners is now a sign of shame and defeat. Governor Rogers has asserted his control. The crisis has passed and the colonial authorities have triumphed. For now. But one man still defies Woods Rogers. One man still dreams of leading a pirate army against the British colony and reclaiming the title of Pirate King. Charles Vane is still at liberty. Next week on Real Pirates, it seems the end of the Republic of Pirates is close at hand. Charles Vane is a man fast running out of options. As desperation grows, he can no longer tell friend from foe. His crew is split. Do they stick with their captain or take matters into their own hands? In Nassau, Woods Rogers' governorship seems to go from strength to strength, but not everyone is impressed with the new order. In a tavern, a plot is being hatched to bring Rogers down. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Roger Morris. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.